In verses 31 through 33 tonight, we're not dealing with a long passage, but we are dealing with something that uh, sounds distinct among the other passages we've looked at, and that is starting to talk about the color of someone's hair in verse 31. Gray hair, no less. And when I read this, a few of you, I could hear a muffled amen. And I I know that uh, this promise, gray hair is a crown of glory, might be encouraging to some here at KBC. Uh, There is, in these three verses, a connection that I want to draw, a thread uh, that I hope will set up uh, our last installment of our summer series here. First of all, this opening promise about gray hair that is gained through this righteous life. We'll think about why it's worded that way, because we might know plenty of people whose hair has changed color and they're no wiser than the day they were born uh, or being reared as children. Like, why is the proverb saying this? Okay, we want to think about that. But over the course of one's life, it is the case in verse 32 that one must deal in the fruit of the Spirit with the issue of patience and self-control. Uh, We might, in fact, say that one of the demonstrations of a righteous life over time is indeed one's restraint demonstrated over that time, verse 32. So there is this measure of control, self-control, but none of us have ultimate control. That is reserved for the, the statement in verse 33. The one who is sovereign, not merely over self, But we recognize certainly the sovereign freedom of the Lord. There is in verse 33 a sovereignty of God that extends to what might seem like the unsure and uncertain results, like the casting of a lot, but is no surprise at all to the Lord who is sovereign over all he has made. So in verses 31 to 33, we want to think about this righteous life and the control over one's anger in life, but ending, ending with a view toward the sovereignty of God who reigns over all of our days, no matter matter what color our hair ends up being. So in verses 31 to 33, we look at these in these three parts. First, the long life of the righteous. We saw bodily imagery mentioned in verse 30. Last time we were together, we thought about winking eyes and pursing lips. I even demonstrated those things to you, and if you were not here last time, you do not get a repeat. In verse 30... And uh, you can listen to it on sermon audio, but it's audio only. You're lost. In verse 30, these winking eyes and these pursing lips are followed by a reference to the head. And in verse 31, a color of the hair, no less. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. We're looking here at the way Proverbs normally speaks of life. And that is with the wise avoiding folly. And having many years ahead of them. This requires us though to remember something that we don't want to be wrong in doing as we read Proverbs. And that is we want to avoid absolutizing things that we know have exceptions. And this in other words is a more principle like statement. We can recognize exceptions that there are those who are righteous who die young long before gray hair would happen. We, in other words we would say that just because there are people who do not end up in old age. We would not want to make some kind of definitive evaluation about their spiritual life. You might say, well, someone didn't live a a long life, a, a, a life where they have gray hair as a crown of glory. This is a principle, but we also know, on the other side, foolishness can end up being the case that over the course of one's life, there's a refusal to wisdom. 
There is a a digging the heels into folly. And therefore, into old age, we know that the wicked can live long lives. The reason the proverb reads the way it does is because the way life may typically function is the righteous are avoiding the things that destroy their lives. And the fools, well, the fool with the short-term vision of life that the fool will have is not thinking about flourishing and lasting long with many decades of following the Lord. And so therefore, in such folly, in such rebellion, there can indeed be physical consequences and even death. This is a principle then in verse 31. We can come across Proverbs where we realize absolutizing something isn't the way to go to interpret it well. We recognize something that is a norm and then reasonable exceptions to it like I tried to highlight. So in the Old Testament, gray hair is associated with old age. Now my dad started getting, uh, started getting gray hair in his 20s. So we recognize that uh, it is not always reserved for what would typically be called old age. It is a principle, all right? We recognize there are exceptions. And that in the Old Testament, growing old would, in contrast to youth, be an arrival through experience of wisdom and uh, through walking and learning of God, Lord willing, a kind of insight and understanding compared to the young. So gray hair gained in a righteous life is to contrast with the young who need to grow in wisdom. Proverbs is very much concerned and aimed at a younger generation that will have a life before them to heed wisdom and to turn from folly. And here's what's being held out for them. What's being held out for them is a crown of glory. Now, somebody who's young might think to themselves, well, I don't want gray hair if I get old. Well, don't get caught up on the hair color. The, the, the point here is that the passing of age leads to gaining wisdom and experience in the pursuit of the Lord. And don't you want that? Don't you want that? That seems to be what's held out here. A life of walking with God. We know sometimes the righteous die prematurely, it seems. We recognize in Psalms and in Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature tells us from an earthly perspective what seems like a life that was too short. Well, with that said, we recognize what the righteous could anticipate, all things being equal. And that is they can anticipate that if they will trust the Lord and turn from wickedness, and they will pursue a life of righteousness and value the beauty and truth of wisdom, that their life will flourish and not self-destruct as the wicked and the folly-ridden sinners do around them. Uh, so this is a, a, a kind of carrot held out for the, for the reader. Isn't this something you want? And it's a pronouncement. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Gained in a righteous life. And a crown sounds like a good thing. So that's a positive image. A crown of glory. It is viewed positively here. It is good to grow old with the Lord. No one amen that. Some of you, <laughs> some of you, I'm thinking, you, you would consider yourselves, I'm just teasing, of course, but in verse 31, you might think, well, indeed, I've been walking with the Lord not for many months or even a few years, but many years, if not decades, walking with the Lord. And it is good to grow old with the Lord. That one would have a length of life where one's influence And example and gaining of wisdom will be a blessing to those around you. You can see older folks in the Bible like Enoch. Here's Enoch in Genesis 5, walking 
centuries with the Lord before the Lord takes him. Abraham, who lives 175 years. When we meet Abraham, he is already an older man. He's 75 years old in Genesis 12. And then over the next 100 years, the story of the Abraham narratives unfold. So many decades of walking with God. We think about his descendants and Isaac and Jacob, all of which surpass 100 years. Moses, who dies at 120. You can go to the New Testament. You see John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is barren before she has John the Baptist. The Lord will do a miracle upon her barren womb. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are an older couple. And then there's Simeon in the temple who's over 80 years old and who's been looking for the coming of the Christ in Luke chapter 2, walking with God year after year and decade after decade. When you have the idea of growing old, there are certainly the impressions that we have that have the, uh, the negatives of a lessening of energy, a compromise of strength, uh, a, a difficulty perhaps of certain health uh, concerns that can have their onset in older age. We recognize there are the realities of physical decline. <clears throat> but in addition to those observations... The Bible highlights the goodness of living long with the Lord. And some of you in this room have had family members, parents, siblings, who lived long lives walking with God. And you're glad you had those years. It was a a blessing to you. You were able to see people into into their elderly years walking with God and setting an example for you. What a blessing that is. To hold out this pronouncement, then gray hair is a crown of glory, I think it's meant to allure us that aside from the realities of growing old in a fallen world, the benefit of growing old with God is that we can be elderly believers setting examples for and pouring wisdom into those who come afterward. In the Psalms, you have this repeated refrain sometimes later in the book, not in book one as much as we've seen, but later in the Psalms. Um, where you are to proclaim to the coming generations the goodness and wonders of God. His steadfast love, all of His redeeming strength. You're to sing those things so that there will be a generation coming up. Well, so who's doing the instructing? Well, it's the older generation instructing a younger generation. You don't want an older generation that has deviated from the ways and wisdom of God. The Bible talks about such a generation as well in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, an Exodus generation comes out of the captivity. And they go into the promised land area, like right right before it, I should say, with spies who enter it, representing the nation, and come back with a bad report. And that older generation, they essentially say, we need a new leader who's going to take us back to Egypt. And they were willing, as a whole, to forsake the leadership of Moses... And look back at Egypt as more desirable than the land flowing with milk and honey. It is outrageous and absurd. And nevertheless, the book of Numbers tells of a group of elderly Israelites who in the main did not follow the Lord how they ought. And a younger generation that would rise up and make those course corrections that that older generation needed. And they would enter the land as the younger generation growing up. Therefore, it is no guarantee that any of us will be serving the Lord as we grow old. The way we think about serving God 
as older folks, and if this is a desire for us as held out in verse 31, then the way we think about our future is I think about the sort of person we are becoming today and tomorrow and the day after that, because obviously you can't decide who you're going to be 50 years from now, but you're on a path toward that person already. You're already being shaped and geared toward and set up for and aimed at and oriented toward a way of living. And therefore, the Proverbs would have the young person think about who he wants to be later in light of how he is living right now. Because someone might think to themselves, well, I'm just going to live this way right now. This is going to be my life. These are going to be my priorities. And then later on in life, you know, I'm going to make these necessary adjustments. I think what's underestimated there is the effect of the callousness of sin upon the heart that lives in rebellion against God. As if you can somehow decide when you're going to follow the Lord, like flipping on a switch. Oh, it's dark in here. Let's get some light, shall we? And then flip a light switch. As if your will and sin work that way. Does not work that way. We should feel the draw and the pressure, a good godly pressure from this text To be one who grows old with God as far as it depends on us. Now the Lord will take us at His appointed time for us. And we will probably all die sooner than we think we will. Nevertheless, the reality of this text says it is a good thing to grow old with God. Don't you want to? Don't you want to? Gray hair is a crown of glory. Gained in a righteous life. That's talking about then the physical appearance of someone who's walking long with God. Knowing, of course, the reasonable exceptions to such a proverb that we highlighted a moment ago. So be someone who even now resolves to look toward those who are coming up after you and thinking in our local church, how can I be someone who loves toward sets an example for and pours wisdom into these who are coming up to learn of Christ. Because all of us are imperfect disciples, and yet to grow old old with God is a kind of glory here, gained in a righteous life. So let's strive to be such godly examples, and to even think about those who walked long with God in the Old Testament That such a glory would be something we would want if the Lord would grant it. We know He is sovereign. We know we can trust Him with all of our number of breaths and all the number of our days. But not knowing the secret things that belong to the Lord. What is it we should hope for and plan for? We should plan to grow old walking with God. That's what we should plan for. And that means our Bible matters, our worship matters, our prayer matters, our communion with the saints matter, because that's what helps direct us toward a path now where we will grow old with God. In verse 32, part of what we will see in our growth are the many sanctifying experiences of our own impatience and frustration being revealed in circumstances and relationships and the need to grow with control over one's self. So we see in verse 32 something that certainly the righteous will learn and seek to cultivate over their long life, and namely this, the priority of learning self-control. We know this is not just an Old Testament idea. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's the opposite of the acts of the flesh. 
And the acts of the flesh would simply have you express whatever in your heart and mind you feel in that moment so that you can be as transparent as possible. But sin being expressed is not ideal for your soul or your neighbor. Rather, the restraint of sin and the love of neighbor involve this virtue, the virtue of self-control. Self-control is seen already in the book of Proverbs with our speech. I mean, how many times, obviously, in these 16 chapters have we seen the tongue emphasized all over the place? And more to come. And this shows us the abiding difficulty of self-control. The pressures of life being what they are, we may find ourselves more easily self-controlled than at other times. In fact, you might realize the the bodily effects that can happen when you've not drunk water in a while or eaten food in a while. You are less patient and maybe less prone to self-control than if you were properly thinking in your mind, what do I need to eat? What do I need to drink? What's setting me on edge? You know, blood sugar is not an unspiritual issue is what I'm saying. Okay, I recognize this and I've had enough conversations with folks at our church to recognize that our pursuit of self-control, the spiritual and bodily factors of life are found together. And we recognize the importance of sleep. I mean, how truthful is it that the less sleep we have and the more we're going on fumes in daily life, the less prone we may be to be patient and loving and regarding someone else. I know this is true for me, and I know you may be able to resonate with this as well. So you can give examples like this to see how growing as an adult and walking with God is going to involve cultivating self-control and being attentive to what makes us vulnerable. Various pressures of life. Maybe, maybe we are not planning well. Maybe not giving enough forethought. And so we are easily overwhelmed by whatever stage in life because we've not taken proper planning and we've been doing short-term decisions without long-term effects that we're thinking through. And so now we're highly stressed and burdened and less patient than ever. So there are ways in which our self-control will be more easily compromised because we're more vulnerable than we think. We're vulnerable with regard to how we eat and how we sleep and pressures of life. These are not irrelevant. Now, it's not like these things excuse our sin. Let's just be honest. I mean, we're responsible for our decisions. It's just to say sometimes we can make our own lives more difficult because we are not taking into, into account certain realities we know make us more vulnerable. So whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, he who rules his spirit, than he who takes a city. What's helpful about this better statement, this, con, this comparison, is the comparison is holding out what can be desirable, and that is to be on the winning, victorious side of something. The mighty. I mean, no, nobody wants in, in a uh, political and social atmosphere to be in the opposite situation because the not mighty get defeated by the mighty. So there's the, the idea of the mighty, like that's, that's the side I would want. Or the one who takes a city. Well, the one who takes a city, it's better to be linked up with that than the one in the city that's been taken. So the, the, the desire here is, yes, there's this triumphant This militaristic picture here of conquest and victory. And so the writer plays on that. And he's, he's, I think, saying, you know what matters more than being able to defeat a city is thinking of yourself as a will to master first and foremost. Slow to anger, that's someone who's better than the mighty. Someone who rules his spirit. 
than he who takes a city. Go back to Genesis 1 for a moment in our minds. We're created in the image of God to subdue and exercise dominion. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And not just subdue and exercise dominion out there, but to rule over one's spirit. Which is a way of saying part of being a faithful image bearer will be to exercise self-control because we know the rule over the self is crucial. I imagine that in the ancient world, just as today, telling people to rule over their spirit and to act with restraint and self-control was quite unpopular because indeed the, the sinful flesh desires to be expressed and desires to not be ruled over, but rather lived out with one's desire. This desire, in this case, would be the expression of one's temper, one's anger unleashed into uh, the lives of others. This is therefore a command given so that you can be a more loving person. See, God's law is summarized by loving God and loving neighbor. So when we're told here in the Old Testament... That it's better to be one slow to anger than being the mighty. That it's better to rule over your spirit than taking a city. He's helping you think about how you can be a loving image bearer toward your neighbor. And that means not living in anger and indignation toward them. But rather ruling over your spirit. Subjecting your spirit in the moment where anger would seem like the way to go. Proverbs 25-28 says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So it's interesting that in Proverbs 25, 28, a city comparison appears, just as it does here in Proverbs 16. In Proverbs 25, 28, again, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is like upholding proper boundaries. Where we might say, no matter how I'm feeling on the inside or what feels like would be the right response here in my flesh... There's a wall here that will not let me subject you to my righteous indignation that is, of not, that is of the flesh. We're not talking about here righteous anger or the importance of, uh, of being uh, rightly indignant toward sin and uh, with a sense of right justice. We're talking here about the need to be slow to anger because of sin. James chapter 1 tells you this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we are restrained, we are trying to love others by keeping our wits about us. Giving full vent to our anger and letting our emotions rule us rather than ruling over our spirit obscures our ability to reason in that moment. And it certainly shuts down conversation on the other side. For example, in Proverbs twelve sixteen, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. And as Christians, we will time, from time to time, and some in more escalating circles than others, face revilements and insults from those who do not love Christ and who do not fear the Lord. And if we will be slow to anger, we will be choosing the way of wisdom in response to that. The prudent knows when to ignore an insult rather than to allow the frustration of that moment to rule over one's spirit. You will either rule over your spirit or it will rule over you. In Proverbs 14.29, who's ever slow to anger has great understanding, but he with a hasty temper exalts folly. 
Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who's slow to anger quiets contention. See, here's what we could say in verse 32. Being cool-headed rather than hot-headed is the way to go. This is wisdom. It's wisdom because it demonstrates self-control, love of neighbor, clarity of thought, and it bears the fruit of the Spirit rather than the acts of the flesh. In verse 32 here, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. This should affect the way we mentor and disciple. It should affect the way we parent. We want to emphasize the importance of self-control. And not just the importance of it, the benefits of it. The benefits of it. The reason people may walk and operate a normal life with unrestrained anger, not, being rule, not ruling over their spirit, but their spirit and emotions ruling over them, is because the incentives and benefits seem to them in the path that they're currently operating in. We need to think wisely. We need to think of the importance, beauty, wisdom, and goodness of self-control, the benefits of it, and that self-control is something that we should learn as early as possible. Think of the powerful imagery here. The mighty. That sounds like power. Someone taking a city. That sounds like power. So here's a takeaway from the proverb. Patience is power. Patience is powerful. And it says to another person, I love you. and You matter. And our conversation needs to happen. And my love of neighbor doesn't need to be obscured by my hot-headedness. And impatience communicates differently. Impatience says, I matter, and I'm mad, and I want you to know it. And so impatience is prioritizing the self. Patience is prioritizing neighbor and mortifying one's sinful flesh. Patience is power, the conquest of the self. He who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. We must press its goodness and wisdom into the minds of uh, us as the people of God and especially to the next generation that we may teach and learn and uh, help them learn and set an example for patience. Control of self is not all-encompassing beyond the self, as verse 33 will help us see. There is a sovereignty of God over all of this. Over one's length of life, in verse 31, that results in gray hair, And ruling over the Spirit done in light of the fact that there is a sovereign God who rules over all He has made and we represent Him. Why would we bother trying to live in self-control if might makes right and we're just in a closed universe with no creator and in the end there's no objective right and wrong, then then you're not going to be able to make A long case for why someone might need to be self-controlled when their anger triumphing over their spirit might get them what they want. What verse 33 reframes all of this in, not reframes as if the frame was gone, of course, but it reminds us at least, is that these pursuits, this cultivation of virtue, the kind of people we're becoming, it's in light of the sovereignty of God over all things. In verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. I want us to think about this lot here in a couple different ways, a couple different layers to this. First of all, the idea of casting something like a dice or, or drawing straws, that in the ancient world was a practice 
where, where people would, would try to appeal to some sort of higher decision maker among the fates and among the gods. And you think about Jonah's story. In Jonah chapter 1, he's been fleeing from the Lord. He gets on board this boat. Then, essentially, chaos breaks loose on the seas. And these people are calling out to their gods, and they find Jonah asleep at the bottom of the boat. And they're trying to figure out how all of this has come about with such a fierce tempest. It it seems to them that the anger of something divine has showed up on their boat. And, And therefore, they cast lots, and the lot falls upon Jonah. And so in the providential discretion of the Lord, he has allowed them to discern the cause of the distress upon the boat. And that is the judgment of God chasing Jonah in his rebellion and, uh, and, and wrongheadedness. In verse 33, the lot can have in mind something that you see in the ancient world that people would try to cast or try to divine the will of the gods. Well, there's a second part to this, though that I think in the lives of Solomon and the lives of the kings that that come after him, it's connected to the priesthood. Because casting a lot into a lap in the days of Solomon and among the Israelites, it was connected to something called the Urim and the Thummim, which were two objects that were probably like stones with various colors or perhaps some kind of marker of a yes or a no that the priest had, the high priest, in his vestment. And so he would keep these two, these two objects, and this lot would be cast in order to discern the will of the Lord in areas where the Lord had not clearly spoken. Uh, they certainly had the Torah, the first five books of Moses, as well as other scripture as the biblical storyline unfolds. But there were times where the priests would come to the Lord with a question, and they would trust that the outcome would be from the Lord. Now, we might imagine that from an earthly perspective, to uh, you know, roll a stone or to draw a straw seems quite random indeed. The benefit of seeing it this way, as John Piper and others have pointed out, is that this seems random from a human perspective, but the sovereignty of God extends over all human affairs on the earth, including this casting of a lot. Because it says here, it's every decision. It doesn't even say like 8 out of 10. It doesn't even say 2 out of 10. I mean, the, the comprehensiveness of this must be something we reflect on. It says every decision is from the Lord. It's an insistence that what may seem random and chance-like in our perspective as human beings, it is, it is not a random world in which we live. We live in a world providentially governed by an all-sovereign God, and verse 33 helps us to see this. Now, Christians will from time to time ask things like, okay, if they cast lots... In the Old Testament. And you know where I'm going with this. In our Christian discipleship, is this something that we do? Now recognize that the Urim and the Thummim were not things that belonged to the Israelite populace in the camp where people were trying to make decisions this way. Rather, it was connected uniquely to the priesthood, the high priest in particular. And the high priest in the old covenant made at Sinai with a tabernacle and sacrifices and this way of divining the will of the Lord. This has been fulfilled in our perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus. This is not something that the New Testament uh, commands us to do or that you see practiced beyond Acts 1 where the replacement for Judas is uh, accomplished through the casting of lots. 
What I think you end up seeing is that this overlap from old into new does not continue on and on and on into the lives of the new covenant saints, especially as the words of God are more um, more uh, fully and canonically accomplished from Matthew to Revelation. One of the ways that I think is right to think about this theologically is that the lack of scriptural clarity about the will of God in the world and on a variety of issues that the Old Testament had not fully addressed, we have the fullness of God's revelation scripturally and therefore, let's say, therefore a diminishing role over time that the lot had played for the believer. So I don't think it is wise practice as new covenant believers that we try to take up this kind of decision making uh, to try to discern the will of the Lord on important matters. Um, Now, maybe you've been in a situation where in a non-moral issue... Uh, you and, and some others are trying to figure out, are we going to go to Wendy's or are we going to go to McDonald's? Let's flip a coin. And then we'll just go, if it's heads, we'll go to Wendy's. If it's tails, we'll go to this. Now, I don't think that that is a sinful practice. What I'm trying to emphasize is beyond that, we're trying to talk about making decisions that are guiding one's life. Guiding one's life. We're thinking about the, the usefulness in the life of Israel for the, the casting of the lot. And how that is not the practice of the new covenant community in Christ who has fulfilled the role and the ceremonial practices of the high priest. So as we look at Proverbs 16 verses 31 to 33, these three short verses hold out for us the value, importance of growing old with God. And as we grow, one of the things we want to cultivate is a life walking in the fruit of the Spirit. And chief among the fruit of the Spirit we can emphasize here is self-control over one's words and actions. So that we can see the power in patience. That we can see, I didn't didn't say impatience, one word, in, one word, patience. In patience. Patience. I have to speak slowly here so that I'm not confusing. But we can see the power to live patiently with others. To love them well and to dignify fellow image bearers by speaking and acting in ways that restrains one's spirit. To rule over. We do this because God who is sovereign has made us in his image to exercise dominion. Even over one's self. Think about the call of Christ. If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and come after me. Is there not, friends, a level of self-denial and self-control, obviously, in the implications of such a verse? This is crucial, not extraneous to, our discipleship. And all of this done, joyfully so, before a God who is sovereign. The way this chapter ends, with the sovereignty of God, even over the casting of the lot into the lap, is something that the, saw, the proverb in chapter 16 began with. We're coming full circle. Notice how the opening of the chapter begins. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. He says in verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So here we come at the end of this chapter to a theme that chapter 16 opened with. The sovereignty of God under which we live our lives under the sun. A doctrine... Not without its ability to, in some cases, 
cause discomfort and concern, bewilderment and great questions, yet a doctrine nevertheless that in the Scriptures is meant to bring far more comfort than ever distress, far more stabilization and trustworthiness before God than its opposite. That the sovereignty of God under which we live our lives is a good and glorious thing to grow old with our God who is sovereign. Let's pray together.